This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Great Cowboy Strike, Bullets, Ballots, and Class Conflicts in the American West by Mark A. Laus. In the pantheon of American icons, the cowboy embodies the traits of rugged individualism, independent, solitary, and stoical. In reality, cowboys were grossly exploited and underpaid seasonal workers who responded to the abuses of their employers in a series of militant strikes. Their resistance arose from the rise and demise of a beef bonanza that attracted international capital. Business interests approached the market with the expectation that it would have the same freedom to brutally impose its will as it had exercised on Native peoples and recently emancipated African Americans. These assumptions contributed to a series of bitter and violent range wars, which broke out from Texas to Montana and framed the appearance of labor conflicts in the region. These social tensions stirred a series of political insurgencies that became virtually endemic to the American West of the Gilded Age. Mark A. Laus explores the relationship between these neglected labor conflicts, the range wars, and the third-party movements. The Great Cowboy Strike subverts American mythology to reveal the class abuses and inequalities that have blinded a nation to its true history and nature. The Great Cowboy Strike Bullets, Ballots, and Class Conflicts in the American West by Mark A. Laus. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. No one has provided a more clear-eyed and exacting study of why movements win than Frances Fox Piven and her late husband and collaborator, Richard Cloward. Today, Piven is my guest. Four decades after Poor People's Movements, Why They Succeed, How They Fail, was published. Their insights into unemployed peoples and labor movements of the 1930s and the later civil and welfare rights struggles continue to offer a framework through which we can better understand everything from what Occupy accomplished to how the left should approach a Democratic Party in turmoil. Before we get started, please take a moment to support the show at patreon.com slash the dig and join nearly 800 listeners who have already done so. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Doing this show is no doubt the coolest job I've ever had. I get to spend a lot of time reading tons of great stuff and then talk to the people who wrote it. But I do need your financial support to keep it viable. Thank you. And here's my interview with Francis Fox Piven, a professor at the CUNY Graduate Center and the co-author of Poor People's Movements, along with many, many other works. Francis Fox Piven, welcome to The Dig. Glad to be here. Glad to talk to you. Poor People's Movements, a book that you wrote with your late husband and collaborator, Richard Cloward, has 
become a, a classic, a real, a really pivotal work, not only in academia, but also very much in the left more broadly. But at the time it was published in 1977, it was somewhat controversial. What did critics on the left take issue with? Well, critics on the left took issue with our critique of the left faith in mass membership, building mass membership organizations, uh, building these sort of little structures that we were capable of building. Uh, and our argument, based partly on our historical studies, our argument that building, uh, investing so totally in building little membership organizations uh, tended to uh, take people off the street, away from uh, the disruptive collective actions that they might otherwise be engaged in, uh, in favor of a kind of faith that these little organizations uh, could be expanded, multiplied, and become a kind of transforming force in electoral politics. We were skeptical both of electoral politics and of the emphasis on building organization. And we actually saw all around us the impact of this confidence, faith, that organizing, organization, uh, was the key to transformative power. We saw people being swept up in what was thought to be organization building. And, you know, at the moment of uh, serious trouble, serious disruption caused by uh, defiant movements of the poor, at those sorts of moments, there was a lot of elite support for these little organizations because there seemed to be at least an intuitive understanding that once you got people uh, enwrapped in these organizational protocols and by virtue of the fact that they were now committed to organizations, they also became intensely dependent on funding and support legitimation from nonprofits and governmental organizations that seemed to be widely understood. And so when there was trouble, enough movement trouble, it wasn't hard to get support for, for you know, not huge support, but modest support for organizational maintenance. But once the trouble was subsided, uh, these organizations tended to wither. And even if they retained some sort of spectral remnant of what they had been, uh, they were not effective. And so your argument was that the organization of these movements, in a sense, helped pacify them. And it seemed that that to some of your critics, the pre-organizational forms of these movements shouldn't have counted as, as movements of at all. And you wrote in a response to your critics at the time, the movements of the people disappoint the doctrine. And so the movements are dismissed which I think is a, is a sly nod to, to Brecht. And the movements, a, a lot of what went on in the movements was defiant and 
uh, it would tended to be the organizers who really came from the university community, if they came from any single institutional arena, who preached the organizational doctrine uh, and to the extent that the mass constituencies wanted to create tumult in the streets, uh, that might be uh, something to be, that they were criticized for. I mean, you know, lefties of all kinds, but it included the organizers of the 60s, are very uh, self-righteous about what they think <laughs> they know. And these community organizers thought that they knew how to build mass membership organizations, which in time, they were confident, would grow. They would steadily grow, and they would come to really uh, overshadow the Democratic Party or the unions or whatever. It wasn't necessarily true that people, uh, that the uh, people, people from the slums who were in these organizations or people from poor, the poor impoverished rural, rural South, that they had the same confidence, but, you know, they were uh, uh, subject to influence by the outside organizers who came in. And besides that, there were really nice things that the leader groups in these indigenous organizations could enjoy as a consequence of the effort to build organization. There were there was a little bit of money. Uh, it could be distributed to the leaders for babysitting uh, costs, for example. There were honorific occasions where people... I was with Welfare Rights, so I keep having in my mind images of the women in welfare rights. They could get dressed in their long dresses uh, for the banquets. Uh, they could take little trips to Washington, D.C., or uh, on a couple of occasions, even to France, where there were peace conferences to which the welfare rights movement was also invited. Uh, there were rewards, but they were not, those rewards were not what the movement had been fighting for. And the movement um, that this or- these organizations were ostensibly acting on behalf of time yeah. and again in the various cases that, that you study, wither. And you know, the leadership that enjoys these honorifics, uh, and I don't think this is, sometimes it's corruption, but usually it isn't corruption because people actually believe that they're doing good for the movement. Uh, but while they're enjoying these honorifics, the movement is withering. And the leadership now has a kind of resistance, even an ant- and antipathy uh, to disruption, to the kind of disruptive, defiant disobedient collective actions that got the movement some credibility in the first place. Critics would later take up the the line of argument you you put forward in poor people's movements with the whole notion of the the nonprofit industrial complex. 
well, the nonprofits were a problem. Uh, in a certain way, a lot of the allies of these movements of the 60s were a problem because they didn't appreciate what I think is a fundamental fact about risings from the bottom of the society, which is that their leverage, to the extent that they have leverage, the leverage of poor people comes from the trouble they can make. And that trouble has to do with defying the rules that usually govern their behavior as workers or as citizens. But the potential allies or the actual allies are forever saying, we agree with your goals, but not with your methods. So you've got to clean up your act. But by cleaning up your act and imitating the rigmaroles of little organizations placed reaches of the social structure, uh, they give up their power. It's still kind of startling reading your book in 2018 to see such a clear-eyed analysis that tries to explain social movement failure, this, this sort of like no-holds-barred public autopsy. And the answer to this question might be sort of obvious, but I'm going to ask it anyways, and it's why do you think these sorts of examinations, these analyses are important for protest movements? And how often do you think they happen today? I don't think they happen. Uh, me, me neither. <laughs> I don't think they do. And uh, I don't know why. I think there are a lot of smart people who are not venal, um, are not self-serving. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why this isn't obvious. Maybe it's because so many of us want more then you can imagine these movements winning. They want a, a recipe, a program for total transformation. So do I. I don't have it. You write that the Southern Civil Rights Movement, even if they had demanded land reform, would have probably still gotten voting rights. I'm not exactly pessimistic, but I'm sort of very chastened about what you win. And I think it takes enormous effort and courage and imagination to do the things that win even those modest improvements. And maybe the accumulation of modest improvements uh, is a recipe for transformation, but it doesn't seem so right now, does it? Well, I I, I, I want to get to the, the present, but first want to talk about the recent decades of, of, of politics. And I've been thinking a lot about the, the arc of protest movements in the U.S. that have defined my life on the left. And I'm 35 and got involved mm -hmm. near the end of the Clinton administration. And my first real movement was the one against corporate globalization, which kicked off in the U.S. with the Seattle WTO protests mm -hmm. in November 99. And it was criticized at the time for being too oriented, too oriented toward these mass protests with yeah, I know. Civil, civil disobedience I aimed, aimed at shutting down these big elite forums derided as summit hopping. What was your take on, on, on that movement? Because after all, it was when they were in the streets that they were, that their issues yeah. were on the top of the, I, the agenda. I remember at the time, 
time. I had bitter arguments uh, with people from the Sierra Club and even Code Pink uh, because I thought that the disruptive actions were such an important part of the protests. And a lot of the the leaders seem to be trying to draw a line between acceptable disruption, orderly orderly disruption, is there such a thing, uh, and what people were doing. But I do think that the left has a real problem, and it's not its fault, in dealing with uh, sort of the... It's... It's left arm, the black blocks of the world. I think that's a real problem. You know, I remember I was driving back from uh, the world. The The U.S. Social Forum, I think. Yeah. U.S. Social Forum. Yeah. And uh, I think there's the recommended road is through Canada. Uh, You get there, you get to New York a little quicker. So my friend and I were driving through Canada, and all the time we were on the highway, uh, we had the radio on, and the newscast was about a very big convening of uh, the Canadian labor movement in, I think, Toronto. Uh, Was sort of assaulted by the Black Bloc, who didn't directly attack the working class people who were there, but had their own agenda and they were breaking a lot of windows. <laughs> and because they broke a lot of windows, or this window breaking, became the reason, the ostensible reason, that police from all, not only from Toronto, but from all the neighboring cities, were being brought into Toronto. And the labor demonstration that had been planned was completely overshadowed by these events. Well, that's not so good either. No. Uh, So it's very hard to make some of these delicate judgments about when both the scale and the kind of disruption brings down the police and a lot of public opprobrium so as to uh, really erase the moral message of the movement. There there was that whole debate between the Black Bloc and their sympathizers and the other organizers that that you're referring to. And then there was also this, this criticism, though, of just of of summit hopping itself of of the mass protests being oh yeah being that's true, central yeah. um but i'm not sure what else they wanted the movement to do i mean there is the long hard road to uh disrupting the global chains that make globalization possible but that's sort of a oh that's gritty organizing and it has to be done in labor, I think, mainly in labor. You know, you can probably imagine closing down 
huge truck depots on the West Coast and on along the Jersey Turnpike. Uh, that would be a disruptive movement. Dangerous. Serious disruption is dangerous. You know, I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about debt strike for years now. And, you know, with financial institutions so deeply in debt and indebtedness having become a mechanism through which the decades-long earnings of the working class are being recouped by the financial sector. But debt, debt is a, a relationship of interdependence because the lender depends on the debtor to pay back the debt, right? You would think that you could you that you could organize, mobilize disruptive movements around debt refusal, but it is excruciatingly difficult because of the cultural uh, shadow over the debtor. People don't really like to come out in public in that role. And it's that's one reason. Another reason is that a lot of that debt is tied up in houses, right? People have their own little uh, house with its picket fence and so forth. And the every debtor's contract is different. People don't understand it. Uh, the, they're threatened with foreclosure or eviction on a different day. It's very hard to organize collective action on those circumstances. So then I thought about, well, what about local governments? Local governments are also deeply entwined uh, with finance. They have huge debts. I mean, that's what bonds are. And they all, but they also have a, a kind of legitimacy that the individual deadbeat household doesn't have. Maybe they could be pressured to resist the terms of the banks when they borrow money. But I've never been able to get anywhere with that. I don't exactly know why. Earlier in this interview, you mentioned that Poor People's Movement takes a pretty skeptical view of, of electoral politics. But by the late 80s and early 90s, around then, you became a major force behind the motor voter law. Right. And that have been... 80, 82, 83, <laughs> we started working on it. Oh, wow. Um, and is it fair to say the, that your your take on electoral politics has changed over time? Uh, or maybe my understanding of my own take. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because if you read the cases in poor people's movements, they all show an, intera- an interplay between the movement's disruptive uh, core activities and electoral politics. And while I still think that being drawn into electoral politics and getting working to get your local councilman elected is less important than uh, collective defiance, uh, I, I have a more articulated understanding of the interplay between protest and electoral politics that I think I had then, or we had then. It's in there. It's in the cases. You can read the cases 
as a chronicle of you know what the movements did and how what they did was influenced by electoral developments because that's a big stage in which meaning is communicated and how what the movements did in turn came to affect what elected politicians did. Uh, but I don't think we articulated that as much as we did the importance of disruption. And But, uh, but I do think Challenging Authority, have you ever seen that book? Uh, no. Oh, that was 2006, I think. I think in that book, uh, there's a more clearly delineated explanation of the interplay between movements and electoral politics. And, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this lately, and I, I, I take a certain amount of heart from the fact that so many activists are moving into the Democratic Party, uh, uh, particularly at the bottom, at lower levels. Uh, but I think that's a good thing. Uh, because a Democratic Party that leans away from Wall Street will encourage protest movements. And it's got to be these Democratic electoral representatives who shape the response to movements. You know, movements cannot survive full-scale repression uh, by the state. That has to be tempered. Uh, and also movements have to win things. And it's got to be elected politicians who do that. And when will they lean toward the movement? When the movement and draws sufficient support or sympathy or support and sympathy so as to threaten the voter base of elected politicians. Uh, so I think they have a more complementary relationship than was clearly emphasized than I don't think we got it across in poor people's movements. It seems like to me that the relationship between movements and electoral politics can also not be immediately obvious as the movements are really at their height. For example, during Occupy, there was all this predictable criticism that occupiers were just sitting around and occupying and not doing anything more concrete or um, proactive, but in retrospect, or didn't formulate their demands. That was yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> in retrospect, they clearly laid the groundwork for the Bernie Sanders campaign. That's true, and their demand was pretty obvious, pretty clear. <laughs> oh, we thought it was very, very clear, and they even uh, flashed it on that big building uh, near Zuccotti Park, which had a blank wall. Do you remember seeing that? Uh, we are the 99% in electric lights on this. <laughs> uh, anyway, I always disagreed with those critics. Uh, I, I thought Occupy was brilliant. Uh, although they didn't. I mean, I think movements have to communicate their broad issues, and they did that very well. But I think movements also have to be disruptive, uh, have to make trouble, have to shut things down. Movements have to find different variations on the strike uh, to enact by using their own refusal uh, as the fuel. And Occupy didn't do, couldn't do that. It 
It didn't have the numbers. It, it was students can shut down a university, but that's about all. Students and people who were students, i.e., members yeah. of the downwardly mobile middle class, yeah. or descendants yeah. thereof. Nevertheless, what they did was fantastic and had huge repercussions. Changed American politics, although it didn't fix American politics. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. Hey, this is Dan Denver, your host. We started this show as an experiment in late 2016, after Trump had been elected president and I had been laid off. And it worked. It turns out that thousands of people find our in-depth analysis of capitalism, patriarchy, and racism immigration politics, mass incarceration, and the drug war, useful in their struggles to transform our dystopian world into something better. We can only do this show with listener support, which means your support. So please join the hundreds of listeners who have already done so and make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. It'll only take a sec. Thanks, and back to the show. I, I want to ask you more about how the left should approach the Democratic Party. And you wrote something that I thought was really smart recently, which is a key weakness of the Democratic Party offers an opportunity to strengthen the influence of the left. The two major political parties are not parties in the sense of disciplined, unified, hierarchical membership organizations. Rather, they are loose and conflict-ridden confederations of separate leadership groups whose overall structure reflects the complex constitutional and institutional arrangements of the U.S. federal system. And I think that's really important because as hostile and cynical as people on the left might justifiably be towards the Democratic Party, it's still not quite right to say that it is inherently a vehicle for elite interests because American political parties are not inherently really anything at all. So how do you see the current state of the party and how the left should be approaching it? I think that the left is already approaching it in a way which is very promising and encouraging. I think the idea of, you know, so many of the seats that were open uh, at the bottom of the American electoral system went uncontested, for example. And so many Democratic Party headquarters in uh, counties and cities and townships were, in a sense, empty. Uh, and moving into those offices and moving into those seats is uh, can be a very uh, can be very useful if if a campaign, the national presidential campaign has come to be what we mainly think about as the Democratic Party, and that was Obama's campaign and then Hillary's campaign. Uh, and so they, the campaign comes into a town. So I'll say it's a big town. And the town has a kind of moribund Democratic apparatus uh, or semi-moribund de- dem- Democratic apparatus. And there is the state Democratic Party, which is not moribund, but is dominated by 
state and local incumbents who don't want to, they don't like outsiders. They don't want anybody to tell them what to do. <laughs> and they think that the money that's being spent by the presidential campaign should be theirs to spend. Uh, well, you know, so it's very fractious, but it also is understaffed in a sense. It's undermanned or underwomaned. Uh, and I think there's a lot of room for activists who can pull the Democratic Party to the left, uh, pull it to the bottom of the society. Uh, you know, if you sort of ask, how could this have, how could our current impasse have occurred? How could it have gotten so bad? How could it be that Republicans control virtually every important uh, part of government? And part of the answer is that the Democratic Party uh, was so sleazy uh, that the DLC had too much influence, but the DLC was just an organized reflection of the influence of donor money on the party. And uh, so the party let labor law reform slide. I mean, it wasn't just stupid. It was also self-interested because they didn't really want activists, uh, let's call them social democratic constituencies, who would make it harder for them to deal with the donor class. Even though that ultimately undermined their own electoral base. it undermines the party. But, you know, you you really think Obama cares about the party? I I don't think he ever did. Uh, He cared about it as a stepping stone to his own elevation. Uh, That's all. He didn't build up the party. Well, the the WikiLeaks um, revelations and then, um, you know, um, Donna um, Brazil's book, I think, are just more evidence if we need it that the emperor doesn't wear any clothes like it's not yeah you read Donna's book because I did too (laughs) it's remarkable um you know it's it's not it it is a the the party is a a shell not a not this juggernaut of neoliberal interests I am so angry at the Clinton (laughs) I because I think that they they were their influence is more pernicious than Obama's Obama was too self-interested, but and he's getting what he wanted. He's gonna, you know, he's gonna go down in history books as a really elegant, well-spoken American president. So what? Uh, and he didn't do what he could have. But no. the Clintons had much more damaging, I think, more damaging influence. Like you said earlier, the your current analysis of electoral politics really is present in many senses in in poor people's movements and one thing that the book identifies repeatedly is that electoral instability and a fragmentation of elite consensus can be this really necessary opening if Mm -hmm. left demands are to move forward and i'm wondering how you appraise the current moment and how, in those terms, and how it compares to other moments you have studied, like abolitionism, the New Deal, 
and the civil rights movement under Kennedy and LBJ? I think it's broadly comparable. I think there is considerable uh, disagreement developing uh, in what are broadly Democratic Party quarters about the role of corporate and fossil fuels, finance, and corporate influence generally. Uh, That's why Bernie is the most popular politician in the United States. Yeah, I think it's a comparable moment. Do you know what I think is worth pondering and a potential source of real historical change, maybe for the worse, is the desperado character of the fossil fuel industry and to an extent of the financial industry as well. Uh, We've always had, you know, powerful corporate interests who were very greedy, but these guys act like they're fighting uh, some sort of last stand. Uh, And you can understand or I understand it at least as a real fear that they're not going to be able to take all of their stuff out of the ground. Now, imagine if you thought you were a billionaire many times over and the environmental movement was getting bigger and bigger and so were environmental crises becoming more and more dangerous. That might make you a little hysterical. In in a in a perfectly rational way, perhaps, or at least perfectly rational underpinnings. Just yeah, the same yeah. way that um single payer is a existential threat to the private insurance industry. You just gulp at the thought of trying to get rid of these apparatuses and the interests which breathe life into them. They've been built up over so many years now. And the healthcare industry was really very modest back in 1950. Now it's so huge. Your argument in poor people's movements is about poor people's movements and just working class left movements that they can win concrete gains when they confront the state at, and capital at these critical nodes of interaction where where they can create when where they can create disruption and defiance um you write it is typically by rebelling against the rules and authorities associated with their everyday activities that people protest and mm-hmm. you also argue that a lot is determined by the political and economic institutions that govern a particular moment so so you very much caution against being too prescriptive in how people should be protest, or at least being prescriptive without taking a sober stock of, of existing constraints. And you were just talking about the, the fight against fossil fuel, the, the, the incredibly powerful fossil fuel industry, a fight that we have to win if, if we're going to fight off um, total ecological catastrophe. And my question is, where does this model, which I think is very well argued, obviously, about defiance and disruption, how does that fit into a struggle against ecological catastrophe, which is so diffuse in its machinations? When we talked about debt a little while ago, 
I argued that I thought there was a real potential for disrupting finance nationally and internationally. But maybe there is some potential also for exerting real leverage against the fossil fuel industry, as suggested by de Blasio's announcement that they were uh, that the city would disinvest five billion dollars from fossil fuels. Remember that? Did you? That yeah. was just a day or two ago. Uh, maybe, maybe that could be a model of action that could spread to other cities. As I said the, a little earlier, cities are really deeply involved with the financial sector. And to the extent that they have investment in fossil fuels, well, people have leverage over cities. Uh, the one thing that the community organizers of the 1960s really could do is they could organize a protest at the Board of Aldermen's or at the mayor's office, and it wouldn't be insignificant. They knew how to do that, and they could always do it. They had enough people in the neighborhoods, and they had enough chutzpah uh, to make it come up. Well, if we could organize leverage against city governments, urging them to disinvest from fossil fuel, I haven't done the arithmetic, but it might make a difference. Be a good course of action anyway, because, I mean, in a certain sense, it's not hard. People don't have to face off against armies to do it. Just your mayor and your city council. Another question I have in terms of how to think about the the model that you outlined in the 60s and 70s and how it might apply in a pretty different context today is is how you think disruption and defiance can work or where the pressure points are at at a time when the interaction between poor people in the state and between poor people in capital has become often limited to to police and prisons and to a social welfare infrastructure that has become very retrenched, fragmented, and privatized. And there's also, on top of that, to make things even more complicated, this you know, extreme casualization of labor by way of temp contracts and the gig economy. I think we ought to pause a little bit over the term poor people, poor people's movements. A lot of poor people's movements and successes have been won by poor people as workers. And a lot of working people in the United States today are indeed poor. They're either below the poverty level or they're below a reasonably revised and adjusted poverty level. Together, working people in, uh, and poor people in the, the communities play a very large role in American life, uh, in the American economy and in American social and political institutions. I don't think that they are irrelevant. Sometimes we thought that in the 1960s, or some people thought that in the 1960s. The idea then was that uh, poor people were a sort of marginal 
outgrowth of the American economy, a kind of detritus uh, that didn't matter. And uh, how, therefore, could they be have significant leverage? That's actually less true today. There are more poor people. And poverty has reached further into what we call the working class or the middle, even the middle class. And so let's forget about the, I would suggest, forget about the terminology. Let's just say ordinary people, people who are not doing well in today's economy and people who are not doing well in today's politics who don't get much out of the fact that the stock market stock market is now at unprecedented heights. It doesn't redound to their benefit. And they don't get anything out of uh, Donald Trump calling himself the smartest person in the world either. So A very stable genius. Yeah, very stable genius. I was trying to remember that. Yeah. <laughs> One big cha- one big change in the context from when you wrote this book, though, is certainly the rise of mass incarceration. I think the rise of mass incarceration is in part a reaction to the the rebelliousness of the American poor, including the poor reaches of the working class. I think this that this terrible crime against us as a society happened as a way of dealing with a sort of surly, increasingly independent, fractious, lower and working class, especially among blacks and Puerto Ricans, the Latinos of the time. Uh, and also the fact that their labor wasn't needed as much as it had been. After all, a lot of Puerto Ricans and blacks work, for example, in agriculture, and now their place was taken by Jamaicans, Haitians, and uh, other Latinos from Mexico. So they became both troublesome, and they were no longer economically crucial, and they were incarcerated. It's an incredible thing to say happened, but it did. It happened. Another movement that I wanted to to ask you about is the the anti-war movement. And when when the US invaded Afghanistan and then Iraq, I was a college student and thought and I was deeply disturbed by what was going on, but I also was a bit excited as a young activist because I thought that I was going to experience my own generation's version of the anti-Vietnam War protest era. But it all fell apart pretty quickly, and we're still at war um, in more places than I can count. And my question is, why has anti-war organizing, do you think, been such a failure? And why does why does American empire remain this sort of untouchable, unopposable backdrop to everything else, and not even really debated backdrop to everything else in American politics? Well, the American empire may be more fragile than 
it looks. Just let Donald Trump be president as he will be for another three years. Uh, but I think anti-war movements are very hard to pull off uh, because the war machine or the ruling class that is making war uh, draws on these powerful blood ties almost that people have to the nation and the flag. And, you know, the sort of phenomenon of the 18th, 19th, and 20th century, this, the rise of nationalism, so that what might be considered the ordinary human attachment to the place you were born and the kin that you grew up with, and now all the memorabilia associated with your place, your village, your clan. This has been transplanted, successfully transplanted to an adoration of the flag and the nation state. And this was a great, the success of this was a great tragedy. It's what made Napoleon possible because he chewed up a generation of young Frenchmen in his campaign to conquer Europe. Uh, and they kept coming because the French Revolution had been a success and the country was now theirs and the flag was theirs. And the nation state belonged to them. It didn't. Uh, but it, the, the sentiments associated with that made Napoleon's war machine very powerful for a moment. In time. Well, if, if you read what Himmler had to say during uh, the rise of the Third Reich, you know, he, you can tell people anything, he said. Uh, you can tell, and, and if you sort of sing the chorus of nationhood loudly enough, they'll leave their farms, they'll send their sons, and they do. They do. It's very, very difficult to build up resistance. And what can what can one say except it's a great human failing uh, that is exposed by the rise of nationalism and the cementing of attachments to family and to place, uh, to the to the state, to the nation state. The anti-war movement during the Vietnam War was very, ultimately very successful, but it was, it, it wasn't the great protests, marches, and gatherings in the United States that stopped the war machine. It was the soldiers in the field, in my view, who, be, who became, who were beginning to threaten the military itself, because they had become so rebellious and so truculent and so difficult to control and to regulate with, you know, their drugs and their this and their that. That was a very unusual thing that I do think the anti-war movement uh, stopped the war, but I think it was the anti-war movement among GIs who stopped the war. One prerequisite you identify for protest movements is 
that people have to come to this realization, this multi-part realization, that the prevailing order of things is not natural, that it is unjust, and finally, that it can be changed through their action. Today, it seems to me like one big ideological, because this is kind of like an ideological hegemony sort of question, it seems to me that one big ideological obstacle is this ascendancy of of the Silicon Valley wizards and that there's been this 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 renewed obfuscation of of who creates wealth in society. What do you see as the left's greatest ideological challenges at the moment? I would agree with you to the extent I would say that there's a mystique now uh, associated with neoliberalism about but both the nature of wealth and how it is created. Because, you know, we don't think anymore about farms and furniture factories as the essential wealth producers of our society. So I agree with you to that extent. But I don't know how different it is in the larger scheme of things. Still, the reliance is on a kind of uh, free market ideology, the idea that the market is natural and that you can't violate market laws without suffering uh, deep penalties. To the extent that people think about it, they sort of think that's the way it is, that's the way markets are. I'm not sure. I haven't thought about it enough. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question, and I don't have an answer to it of how much of a rupture it is, but it, it, it seems to me that the sort of celebration which is it, it's it, which has definitely slowed down a bit because of all the you know concern over over Russian hacking and things like that. But but for but for years there's just been this kind of deification of of the the 23 year old or whatever who figures out some new app in his um, garage and then as a result des- yeah. deserves uh, all of his billions and uh, monopoly power over whatever you know platform he's created. But that's a, um, just a modern version of an old American myth that's, that has been very important in American society. But, you know, I think it's a mistake to try to figure out what people think. What, a, what is it they fill their head with or that they, the advertising industry and the mass media, pour into their heads? Because I think people think a lot of things simultaneously, and they're not necessarily consistent. So when people rise up in outrage, uh, it's often because something that they had always kind of thought, but had sort of lain in their brain, along with other thoughts, has been activated. Uh, you, what you notice at times of mass risings is in a way how rapidly people come to recognize and articulate uh, the indignation of the movement. Uh, They didn't just think of that. It was there. Some knowing, perhaps, but it was there. I want to switch gears and ask you a bit about, about yourself. 
Richard Cloward, um, your husband and collaborator who passed away in 2001, how did that develop sharing not only your, your private lives, but your intellectual and political work so closely? We came together through mobilization for youth, which was a sort of community organization, social renewal program on the Lower East Side that had originally been started by settlement houses on the Lower East Side and uh, with some support from NIMH and the Kennedy's uh, program for juvenile delinquency and youth crime that was started, I think, in 61, 62. And Richard was a criminologist, and he was involved with these early meetings, plans, ideas about bringing all the resources in the community, the social agency resources in the community together with some new government funding in order to uh, improve the community? Well, the public rhetoric had a lot to do with juvenile delinquency. Uh, Richard Cloward and Lloyd Owen had written a book about juvenile delinquency, which made a case for the theory that delinquency was a response or criminal youthful criminal behavior was a response to blocked opportunities that resulted from a flawed educational system and a flawed uh, and blocked access in the economy for for some young people so presumably if this theory were true if you opened up opportunities in the community if you made the educational system more welcoming are more accessible to kids, if you provided community services which help their families adapt to northern urban life, uh, and if you made jobs available to kids, there'd be less delinquency and youth crime. Uh, that was a theory that was uh, embedded in the original proposal for the Mobilization for Youth program, which was a very, for the time, a huge social program. They were going to take like half of the area of the Lower East Side and they were going to transform it. Uh, Now, I came to it from a different, somewhat different past and uh, with a considerable skepticism about all these plans. I had I was working on my dissertation, and I needed a job. I was break, in the process of breaking up with my husband. I had a little baby, and I, I had gone to graduate school in uh, social and economic planning. There was a program like that at the University of Chicago, but I was a big skeptic about the claims of uh, these planners, uh, the claims for comprehensive planning, and I sort of suspected it was all riddled with interests, economic interests, Uh, but mainly I hadn't defended my dissertation, I hadn't quite finished it, Uh, 
And I wanted out of this marriage, and I had a baby who was, I think, a year old. No, she was three years old or something like that. Uh, and so I needed a job. And I approached, or Richard approached me, or asked me if I was interested in working for mobilization. And I said I was interested if I could work on what was sort of the planning ideas, the idea that all these different uh, people who controlled social, controlled public resources, social resources, could come together under a common common understanding of the problem and what the public welfare would dictate be done about the problem. I was sort of interested in the politics of social welfare. He said, he basically allowed me to do what I wanted to do. He said, yeah, do a history of the project and do it from that point of view. Uh, So I said, okay, so I put me on staff. And once the project actually got funded, I was real. I became much more interested in the community organizing that it had also proposed to do, uh, tenant organizing, and eventually welfare rights organizing. Uh, so, and this is uh, this is sixty two, sixty three. Yeah, yeah. It was so exciting. I can't tell you. I mean, I used to. I lived in, on the edge of Harlem. And I worked on the Lower East Side, and everywhere I walked, especially in the summertime when everybody was outside and the windows were open, you could just feel the streets throbbing with pent-up emotions. You could feel it. And, I, I, I mean, I was just, it was the best job I've ever had. Because it really let me kind of listen to the neighborhood and to talk to all these people who were trying to do something for the neighborhood. And uh, within a few years, I was trying to organize rent strikes in Harlem. Uh, So that's how I got to it. I got to it in a slightly different way than Richard. But it was a great project. It was, and there were so many people there who seemed to feel liberated by the creation. I mean, professionals who seemed to feel liberated by the creation of the project to do what they always wanted to do. This episode of The Dig is also brought to you by University of California Press, which is without question one of the best university presses out there. One title you might like is Chicago on the Make, Power and Inequality in a Modern City, by Andrew J. Diamond. Heralded as America's quintessentially modern city, Chicago has attracted the gaze of journalists, novelists, essayists, and scholars. And yet, few historians have attempted big-picture narratives of the city's transformation over the 20th century. Chicago on the Make traces the evolution of the city's politics, culture, and economy, as it grew from an unruly tangle of rail yards, slaughterhouses, factories, tenement houses, and fiercely defended ethnic neighborhoods, into a truly global urban center, reinterpreting the familiar narrative that Chicago's autocratic machine politics shaped its institutions and public life. Andrew J. Diamond demonstrates 
how the grassroots politics of race undermined progressive forces and enabled an alliance of downtown business interests to promote a neoliberal agenda that created stark inequalities. Chicago on the Make takes the story into the 21st century, chronicling Chicago's deeply entrenched social and urban problems as the city ascended to the national stage during the Obama years. Chicago on the Make, Power and Inequality in a Modern City by Andrew J. Diamond, out now from University of California Press. A lot of people don't know that you started off as a planner, or not quite started off, I guess you had other jobs before then, of course, like uh, waitressing and, and whatnot. But in terms of your uh, your white collar existence um, as a planner, wh- why did you get into planning and and why did you get out of it? Well, I got into it because um, from the time I was a kid, I just wanted to do politics. I wanted to do things, something that would change the world. Uh, and... I had been at the University of Chicago College, which sort of poured all this uh, classical education into our heads and made me a little impatient. Uh, I, I just, I wanted to do, I wanted, I wanted a, a job that had more to do with changing the world. I wanted a profession that had more to do with changing the world. And uh, the kind of planning school that I went to for a couple of years anyway, uh, I mean, I finished it, but it it was very much influenced by the New Deal. uh, And it was called a, a program in social and economic planning. It had been started by a new dealer called Rexford Tugwell. Now, it was disappointing in the sense that uh, it didn't think about social change the way I thought about social change, but that was why I went to it. That's why I chose it. And uh, and why did you get out of it so so quickly? Because it was disappointing, because the field of planning seemed to me to be it made me impatient. It was too, I thought it was kind of narrow. It had to, it has to do with, you know, zoning and subdivision and building regulations. And uh, it's not what I meant by planning. Did it, did it ultimately shape the way that you thought about politics over the long run and maybe in terms of thinking about how people live in a built environment? I'll tell you what influence of what I thought about politics. Uh, the first job I got as a planner was working on a rezoning plan for New York City. And I was far and away the youngest planner there, and I was always getting assigned. I, well, for one thing, I had a big mouth. So, <laughs> but people were, people were nice to me, because I was, after all, just a kid or whatever. But they gave me assignments sort of field work assignments, research assignments. like, and, and they gave me resources to complete them. I had, under my command, I had uh, half a dozen field workers and automobiles to go out and look at and take 
and measure all new industrial construction in the city. And when that project was completed, I got another project uh, to do the same about parking facilities in residential construction, blah, blah, blah. So I got all these, I had all these three by five cards. I had all these people working in the building department records. I was only 22, 23 years old, I think. Maybe I was 24. Uh, oh, no, I was older than that because I already had a baby. Uh, but anyway, I was young. And uh, I kept waiting for the senior planners to ask me for my data. <laughs> and they didn't. They were working on the rezoning of New York City, the capital city of the world, and planning doctrine says that everything is based on scientific research, uh, which requires, at a minimum, uh, developing data on the existing physical superstructure of the city. So, and I had that data. The Department of Planning in the city of New York did not because I knew that their maps with their little flags were wrong because we had been out in the field. Uh, nobody asked me for my data. One day, I got so aggravated, I started taking the cardboard boxes in which I had filed the three-by-five cards home. I put them on the top of the, clothes the coat closet in the hall, and I waited for somebody to ask me for it. They did not. <laughs> then... Uh, I was so discouraged because I had had a growing sense that everybody was ready to bend to the demands of the real estate industry because who cares most about the regulation of the built infrastructure of the city? The real estate industry. And we talked in the office. They talked, uh, these senior people, about the real estate people who had come to visit and so forth. And then came, they finished the zoning ordinance. They had never asked me for my data. And I was the only person who was collecting all this data. And so it was just they this, never asked me for it was it. just this charade um, that they had to do as a pro forma thing because you're supposed to do that. But what it was actually the, the growth machine, the growth machine calling the shots. But I thought that they needed to do it for themselves as well as for the Board of Estimates. But during the hearings on the zoning ordinance, they kept referring to the data that they had. <laughs> they didn't have it. I had it. Uh, it was in your closet. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I forgot about being a planner. And I had gotten my PhD actually from an interdisciplinary committee, which included all the social sciences. So from that time on, I started saying I was a political scientist, and nobody corrected me. You've made a point of avoiding ideological labels throughout your life on the left. Why is that? I grew up at a time when I think ideological labels were very important among a lot of lefties, and in a sense, to no avail. Of people just kept fighting and reclaiming. I mean, my 
father, for example, thought that socialists were social fascists. I grew up with the idea that uh, Trotskyites were really bad people. Uh, yeah, that's stupid. And then came the the great civil rights movement, and it just overshadowed all those you know, querulous, stubborn, fighting people. And I found it very moving. And then the the movements that I participated in, the penance movement and the welfare rights movement in the 1960s, and even the student movement, the anti-war movement, they didn't use those labels at all. And that was fine with me. Though I guess SDS ultimately moved into but they, a bit of yeah, but a sectarian direction in its later years. Yeah. I think today one reason that a lot of young people are really embracing identifying themselves as as socialists and prioritizing prioritizing running people who will identify openly as socialists for office, including very much so on the Democratic Party line, is because it might help further the the breakdown of this neoliberal consensus that has governed this country for so long. It's so restricted what we were allowed to imagine or, or aspire towards politically. Well, I don't think so. Uh, maybe. I mean, I'm not, I'm not against it. I don't pay much attention to it. I know that for a long time, uh, people would say who were uh, socialists, or, or, or the sort of Michael Harrington crowd often said that you have to say you're a socialist because that then people elsewhere will recognize who you are, what you are, what you're doing, what you believe. I don't know if that's, it doesn't seem to me that that is particularly true. They thought there was some sort of magic in the name, and I was kind of convinced by that. Uh, did I even think I was a socialist? Well, it didn't. It didn't seem to me to matter. You know, I got engaged by particular, more particularistic demands. I never, I never went out into the streets for socialism. And does anybody? In terms of the kind of changing openness or close, closeness towards different ideas that have prevailed in different periods, one thing that I wanted to ask you about is that in recent years there's been a renewed discussion around universal basic income or some sort of guaranteed minimum income, which was a big priority of the welfare rights mm -hmm. movement that you were involved in and analyzed in the late 60s. And um, you know, then we lived through the 80s and 90s backlash of, that culminates in, in welfare reform signed by Clinton in 96. And I'm wondering whether you could say a little about how the politics of American social welfare, the changes you've witnessed over the decades that you've been involved in it. Well, I think mainly what's developed is a big assault by corporate interests and their right-wing politician allies on the New Deal welfare state. I don't think it's... <clears throat> an assault on a guaranteed income. We don't, never got a guaranteed income. It's an assault on an array of programs 
which tended to boost the living circumstances of working and poor people. And by doing so uh, to reduce the fear of unemployment, illness, stability of all kinds. It's, you know, it's what people, people can see that and can see the difference it makes. Look, they haven't gotten rid of Social Security yet, but they, although they'll, they'll try, but why do people like Social Security so much? Because, well, two reasons. One is they can see the difference it makes in the like of life circumstances of the old and the disabled. And the second reason is they don't think it's socialist because it's sort of presented as a kind of insurance program. If you think about it, you know, look at one of the pioneer programs of the 1930s was public housing. And we don't talk about that anymore, but we and we also don't talk about the fact that at least half a million housing units were destroyed in the neoliberal period. Now, it was so painfully difficult to get those public housing units. There was so much controversy, uh, not only from the real estate industry, though, although that was clearly one of the biggest opponents, but also uh, from whites in the cities who didn't want these great agglomerations of black people. And white politicians didn't want great agglomerations of black people either. So after all the pain and the trouble and the turmoil and the arguments, they destroy half a million units on the grounds that they're going to create integrated new developments, class and racial integration, which in the main they don't, or at least if they do, it's their gentrified developments so they don't provide enough places for the poor people who are displaced from public housing, uh, just wiped away. Public housing doesn't get maintained or serviced in a way that would make it a place you could live in with self-respect. The, so it's not just it's not just guaranteed or the idea of guaranteed income that the welfare rights movement took up. Uh, it's a whole array. It's all the programs they've they've been, have been under attack, and they're under attack as part of an attack on labor. I think they make. The programs make labor a little bit less insecure, even though labor has been a weak, not a missing, but a little bit weak as an ally of these programs. Yeah, I mean, uh, what was welfare reform about at the end of the day, but but pushing um, poor yes. poor mothers into the low-wage job Absolutely. market? One thing that does seem different to me now, though, is that you have extremely popular politicians like Bernie Sanders and organizations like Democratic Socialists of America, which have exploded in, in membership size, who are not only playing defense in terms of defending what little this country has by way of social welfare, 
but demanding and arguing for a dramatic expansion. Um, something that would have been hard for me to imagine in the 90s or 2000s. Congress isn't considering any of those proposals, I would point out. <laughs> Not right now, but um, I would... Maybe. Be... I mean, it's going to take more, though. And uh, Trump has another three years in office, and he'll probably stick it out. Uh, he's not going to get impeached, I don't think, because who's going to impeach him? A Republican Congress? Not likely. Uh, when, if and when the Democrats rebound and take over the national government, they're going to take over an ar array of programs that are really badly hurt by these guys. Uh including uh, the housing programs, but the environmental protection programs, the Medicaid is being chewed away. I, I think the wheel will turn, but here's the problem with the guaranteed income talk, including my own. It's not a, ma a silver bullet. It's not magic. It's not because we call it guaranteed income that it's important. It's important because it makes life more secure for people at the bottom of the society and makes us all better as a consequence. You know, a, a guaranteed income program of $1,200 a year for a family or something like that, that's no victory at all. Though one of your, your arguments, I think, is that we need to be able to recognize small small victories that might not be any victory. Oh, that's true. <laughs> but that wouldn't be, uh, I'm assuming that you, uh, to get that program through, they'd give away welfare, cash welfare. They'd give away a lot under current conditions. So it's not because it's a guaranteed income. It's because it, it's a program that provides some of the necessities of life to make people more secure. Yeah and more healthy and more happy. Lastly, you you had been already very well known for quite a, a long time around 2010, but it it still must have been utterly bizarre and probably a little frightening when when Glenn Beck suddenly decided to name you as this top mortal threat to the American economy. Uh, what what was that like in retrospect and why do you think he chose you? God no. I have no idea why he chose me. I have a suspicion uh, that it well, had to do with sort of an idiosyncratic uh, connection, which was that, uh, you know, there was in the 1960s a lot of resentment among a group that had been considered vaguely on the left sort of the commentary crowd, the public interest crowd. There was a lot of resentment among them uh, toward whites who encouraged the black movement, supported the black freedom movement. And one of the reasons, probably the most justifiable reason, that people like Norman Podhoritz and Irving Kristol and Daniel Patrick Moynihan were so resentful of both the black movement and white, its white supporters 
was that they believed the Democratic Party would be the vehicle for the United States to eventually evolve into a social democratic society. That's the nicest reason I can think of for their ferocity. One of those people was the co-editor of Ramparts. What's his name? I can't remember his name. David Horowitz. Yeah, David Horowitz. Uh, I think he was influenced by that analysis and the fact that it made Richard and I targets. Uh, And they were especially influenced by an article that we wrote in 1966, A Strategy in Poverty, that we published in The Nation, which came to be called, in welfare rights circles at least, the crisis strategy. And that was the idea of mobilizing people to demand their legal benefits under welfare. And we tried to play out the way it would happen in local politics and what effect it would have on local budgets and political alignments, and then how it would ricochet up to the state level and the federal level at a time when the Democrats controlled the federal government. So um, this uh, this article, which was a kind of blueprint, uh, aroused considerable indignation among these public intellectuals who thought that, you know, at all costs, the Democratic Party had to be preserved because it was the vehicle for progress in the United States towards social democracy, I suppose. What I think is that David Horowitz got to Glenn Beck 40 years later. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and Uh, and that's how you ended up on his uh, weird chalkboard. Yeah, I think so. I mean, <laughs> do you remember the tree? The tree yeah, which made yeah. Richard and I responsible for everything, SDS, Barack Obama. And I think a lot of people became acolytes of that interpretation because they believed in witchery still. I I do, do think Lynn Beck tried to make the most of the fact that I was an old woman Uh and therefore had occult powers. Uh, <laughs> do, really? Do you do you have a do you do you own cats? Oh, I have a black cat. Absolutely, <laughs> I've always had a black cat. Uh, <laughs> I have a black cat. I, I don't have a witch's hat, but I could produce one very easily. And uh, the the blaze, which was Glenn Beck's little newsletter used to have a picture of me at the head with flames for hair. I mean, there'd be these flames coming out of my hair, out of my head. It, it was horrific. And one day I came in from school. It was a rainy day. I flipped on the television, and there was Glenn Beck reporting on... Uh, an uprising in Tahir Square. And he pegged seamlessly into a report on my efforts with the unemployed as if I had somehow been in Tahir Square. Uh, I could not ever have done all of those things if I were a mere human. So anyway, that that was how I got to be. I got a public platform again. 
it was it was fine. Uh, they threatened to. They put the. I have a little house upstate. They put on line directions how to get to it. So for a long time, I didn't go there unless I was with a friend who would let me read and work. Because uh, it was at the end of a long road that only went to my house. Did it at least help with book sales? Selling books is really so hard these days. Uh, I doubt that I sold many books, <laughs> but I did get a public platform again. Uh, so that, that was good. That was worth something. And my students were great. They loved it. (laughs) Well, Francis Fox Piven, thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Send me the podcast. Francis Fox Piven is a living legend, a professor at the CUNY Graduate Center and the co-author of Poor People's Movements, among many, many other things. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said shortly after he underestimated the lumpen proletariat, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice, but sometimes not. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a review. Kind five-star reviews there help introduce us to new listeners. So does telling your friends about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. Even a few bucks is a huge help. 